So Genesis chapter 13, and we're looking at the Pentateuch. We're in Genesis 12 uh, last week, and we saw God's promises to Abram, and then we came to Genesis 12, or now we're coming to Genesis 13. We're going to talk about what happens in between verse 9 and verse 1 of Genesis 13, 1, and we'll talk about that in the sermon. But uh, Abram, Sarai have just come back from Egypt. And if you're able to this morning, if you'd stand with me uh, in honor of God as we read his word together. Genesis 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northwards, and southwards, and eastwards, and westwards. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's pray and as I begin prayer here, I'm going to read from Psalm 138, kind of as we think about Thanksgiving and our response of worship to it. I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And Heavenly Father, we do offer our thanks to you this morning. We thank you for life. We thank you for the ability to be here this morning. And we thank you for the opportunity to worship together. And our prayer, Father, would be that we would take the things that you've given us and we would respond 
in the same way as you have, that we would use the things you've given us to exalt above all things your name and your word and help our hearts to be turned toward you, to be sensitive to your word this morning. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. There's a couple of questions I want us to start with this morning as we look at the story of Abram here in Genesis 13. The first question is this, why does God have so many stories in the Old Testament about the saints? Why does he have so many stories about the Old Testament saints? Why do we read about Job and and David and Solomon and Esther and Ruth. Why does God have so many stories about Old Testament states and saints? And then the second question kind of related to that is, is how do we teach about the Old Testament saints? As we're getting up to, to teach children or in a sermon on a Sunday morning, how do you teach about the Old Testament saints? And if you have any really good ideas, if you could just text me right now. Uh, first service was a little weak, and so I kind of need some help. No, don't, don't really... Don't really text me, right? You know that. Okay, good, thanks. Um, be very, you need to pay attention. Um, how, do you, how do you understand the, about the Old Testament saints? And, and how do you, like, why does God have the, their stories there in Scripture? What, what is he trying to teach us about the Old Testament saints? And, and then how do, we, how do we teach that? And, and sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we think the story of David or of Samuel or of whoever it is in the Old Testament, we think, well, that story just exists as kind of like a moral lesson. And so we teach it that way. The story of David is about how to be brave, or the story of Solomon is about how you need to be wise, and Ruth is about how you need to be kind, and Esther is also about how to be brave, and Abraham here is about how to be patient. Let me suggest to you that that's a really dangerous way to teach and think about the Old Testament saints. Job doesn't just exist to teach us about how to be suffering, people who suffer well. We don't just look at the Old Testament saints and think, well, if I want to be a good person and make good choices, I just make the same choices that they made. If it's true, if it was true that we could just make good choices and be good people, then Jesus wasn't necessary, right? The gospel isn't necessary. You see, the danger of teaching the stories of Old Testament saints like moralistic lessons, the danger is that we undermine the gospel message, the message of the gospel that we need radical transformation, a radical transformation that can only take place through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. And if we teach the Old Testament saints stories as just moralistic lessons, then we undermine that gospel message. And so we can't teach them that way. So how do we preach and teach about the Old Testament saints? What's the purpose? Why are they there? And then what do we communicate as we think about why they're there? And let me just suggest this as we think about Abraham this morning. As we looked at the Pentateuch, for the first time some months ago, we realized that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch just so that people could know about the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, so that people could understand how to live by faith, in obedience to God, to love him. 
As Joshua says in, in Joshua 22.5, he's talking about the law and he tells us about the, its purpose. He says, be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And then what's, what's the essence of it? To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him. Don't you love that phrase? To cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, Joshua, as he talks about the law, doesn't say, now remember, remember the law. Moses gave you the law so that you keep all these rules. No, Joshua says, remember the law that Moses has given us so that we would love God, that we would cling to him, that we'd have trust and faith in him, love him with all our soul. That's the essence of the Pentateuch. That's the essence of the, the law so that we could learn to live by faith. And Moses talks about Abraham a lot. Now, why does Moses spend so much time talking about Abraham? It's not so we'd have some moralistic guy to look at and say, okay, I need to mimic everything that he does. He shows us Abraham, I believe, as an example of a person who even though he fails at times, is a person, a man, who lives by faith. In Genesis 26, God would describe Abraham this way. In Genesis 26, he would say, Abraham obeyed my voice and he kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. In other words, Abraham, living before the law, obeyed the law. And how did Abraham obey the law? Because he lived by faith. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, how can God say that Abraham kept his law and his statutes, his rules? We're going to look at a story today, of, and part of the story, I guess, before the text we're looking at today in Genesis 12, where Abraham clearly did not obey God's law. How can it be said that Abraham was a person who kept God's law because God looked at Abraham's faith and counted it as righteousness? So as we come to Genesis 13, it would be inappropriate for us to say, okay, here are the two things Abraham did. I'm going to be like Abraham. But we do come to Genesis 13 and say, okay, here's, here's this guy, Abraham. A person who, even though at times he failed, was a person who was striving to live by faith. Faith in this promise that God had given him, really the promise of a Messiah. Abraham was a person of faith. And as I come to Genesis 13, I look at Abraham dwelling in the land as a sojourner. And I see the example of a person who's trying to live by faith in God's promises ultimately the promise of a Messiah. And I learn about how I am to be a person of faith, trusting in the Messiah in a land full of stuff that isn't eternal. Does that make sense? See, Genesis 13 is a story about Abraham in the land and Abraham dealing with stuff and possessions and things. And, and 
as we come to Abraham, God could have just had, he could have just had a, a chapter in the Bible that said, okay, here's, here's six things to do with your stuff. But instead, he tells us the story, the story of Abraham and I. Abraham handled living the land. And we come to Abraham, we say, okay, here's another person trying to live by faith. And I have some, some, practical, some, some practical things here that I can learn about how I'm to view stuff and the, the, the things that I have been given in this kingdom. And that's really what I want you to grasp this morning. I want us to come to Genesis 13. Seeing Abraham as a person that Moses has told us about as an example of faith, not a person that we emulate him, but a person we emulate his faith. And I want us to see how a person of faith lives in the land, lives with stuff, because it's a struggle that all of us have. All of us are in a land and a kingdom, and it's kind of something I got some questions on last week. We live in this land, we live in this kingdom, we have things. How do we as people of God, people who are trusting the Messiah, how do we live with stuff, with things, if we're sojourners, people who are not long for this world, people who would say this isn't our ultimate kingdom. Hebrews eleven nine, by faith Abraham went to the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with the hymn of the same promise. Abraham was a sojourner. You and I are sojourners. What do we learn about sojourners and their stuff from Genesis 13? I'm going to suggest there's Seven practical suggestions for you as a Christ-centered sojourner. Here's the first one. Number one, number one, first practical suggestion for you as a Christ-centered sojourner, return to worship when you have failed with your stuff. Return to worship when you failed with your stuff. So you're there in Genesis chapter 13. Uh, go back a little bit to Genesis 12. And we ended in Genesis 12, 9 last week. And then you come to verse 10. And it says there was a famine in the land. And uh, this this next section of scripture until we get to verse 1 of 13 is one of the darker periods of Abraham's life. He responds not in faith here. He goes down to Egypt. There's a famine that's severe and he goes to the land and he says this to Sarai in verse 11, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Okay, so maybe Sarah's thinking at this point, well, that doesn't sound terrible. I'm still alive in this scenario. But uh, Abraham says, so here's the deal. Verse 13, very self-centered response of Abraham. Here's what I want you to do. Say you're my sister. Now, we know later in Genesis that Sarah was actually his, his half-sister. He, she was his father's daughter by an, another woman which is a very uncomfortable part of Abraham's story, right? And clearly it means that he didn't obey the law of God perfectly in terms of what was revealed later to Moses. But he says, I want you to say that you're my sister. And then, verse 13 again, then it will go well with me because of you. So I want you to do this for me and things will go well for me. They'll act nicely to me for your sake. They'll like you, so they'll treat me well. Let's do that. And then probably know the rest of the story there. Pharaoh does treat Abram well. He gives him lots of possessions. He gives him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, so forth. And then God responds by afflicting Pharaoh with great plagues. And somehow, we don't know, the text doesn't tell us, Pharaoh realizes what's going on. And so he kicks Abraham out. He, he's, he says, why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? Now, here's your stuff. Here's your wife. Take her. Go. And really what's happened here is Abraham has not trusted God, right? As he's fearful in this kingdom, he doesn't view his things, his possessions, even his life rightly. He fails to trust God and his promise of Messiah. And he, he treats God's promise 
rather, rather uh, carelessly. He's allowing his wife to potentially become united with another man and children born from her, there'd be question about where those children came from, right? Abraham has not acted as a man of faith here in Genesis 12. He's acted incredibly foolishly. It says, verse 20, Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all of his stuff, all that he had. Now, the text doesn't tell us about the trip home. But you can imagine it was rather awkward, right? There's Abraham. Well, that turned out okay. And Sarah. Really? Like the part where Pharaoh took me as his wife almost? Like that, that part was the part that went well? Well, not that part so much, I guess. Abraham has acted incredibly foolishly. His wife cannot be very pleased with him. He's lost honor in the eyes of his servants and his family members. Abraham is at a very low point. And so it says that he returns, and in verse 2 it says he's, he's rich, he has livestock and silver and gold, and I think there might be a, a little bit of a negative statement on that as well because there's, it's telling us what's, what's the, the case, but at the same time, we know that some of the ways that he acquired that were through what's just happened in Genesis 12. But how does he respond? He responds by going back to the beginning, going back to where he dwelled before he went to Egypt. And what does verse 4 tell us? It says that he went to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And that's the first principle, right? Return to worship when you've failed with your stuff. This has certainly happened to me at times. And maybe it's happened to you as well. You've come into to church. You've been getting ready to, to, to sing. And even as you kind of sit there in the chair before the song begins to sing, you realize, boy, I am in no place to worship God rightly right now. Or you begin to sing the words of the song, and you're trying to really think about what they're saying, and, and then you realize what I'm singing doesn't reflect what happened in my life this last week. You see, worship does this. Worship helps us reorient our life rightly. As we come to worship, what we're saying is, God, you are of infinite value. There is nothing that I possess, nothing that I, I hold on to that is more valuable than you. That's what we're singing. That's what we're thinking about as we come to worship through the word. All those things are, are, are what we're saying to God as we worship. And as we say those things, we're convicted of how we have failed to manifest that conviction in our lives, and we confess and we repent it, right? Worship helps us reorient our life rightly. I say, okay, this is what I've done with my stuff. This is what the songs I'm singing say. This is what the Word of God says. I need to reorient my life. God, please forgive me. There's great conviction that takes place in my heart sometimes as I engage in worship. I think about conversations I've had that haven't reflected this reality. I think about attitudes that I've had that haven't reflected the reality that God is supreme over all things. I think about the ways that I've, I've viewed money or whatever it is or, or whatever attitude I've had toward family members that hasn't been right. Worship helps me reorient my life, right? When you fail with your stuff, what do you do? You, re- you return to worship. You return to worship and that's what Abraham does here. He returns to worship. 
You give praise to the one who most deserves it. And if you're going to be a Christ-centered sojourner, a person who views their stuff rightly, you've got to be a worshiper. You've got to be a person who actively proclaims God's infinite value, his worth above all other things. Here's a second thing for you as a a practical suggestion for you as a Christ-centered sojourner. Number two, prepare yourself for the trouble your stuff will bring. If you're going to rightly handle your stuff, you must prepare yourself for the trouble your stuff is going to bring. Here's what happens in the story next, right? It says Lot is there too, and we haven't heard a lot from Lot in chapter 12, but he's there with Abram. He also has flocks and herds and tents, and as they come to this land, there's a problem. This land that Abraham was in before isn't big enough to sustain the herds, the flocks, and all the people of of both of them and the other people who are living in that region. And so as Abraham and Lot's herdsmen, the people watching their animals, kind of try to compete with resources, there's there's conflict. Each of them are loyal to, some of them are loyal to Abraham, others are loyal to Lot, and they're struggling with, okay, what, what do we do? And there's conflict, there's strife. Strife, it says in verse 7, between the herdsmen. Now, this is really, I think, crucial for us to to think about. What happens to you when you get a lot of stuff? We have this mentality that having stuff is a good thing, but what happens whenever you get a lot of stuff? Well, one thing that happens is you think about it, right? When you have stuff, you think about your stuff. My son and I, a few weeks ago, or maybe it was a month or so ago now, built a, a grill. We went to Walmart. There's a grill on clearance, and so we purchased this grill, and we assembled it, and then we set it outside, and we, we went somewhere, and he and I were both thinking about the grill. You know, We're thinking about the grill, and oh, when can we get when, when can we home and grill on the grill? It started to rain, and both of us were thinking about, oh, man, there's, the rain is, is hitting the grill, this new grill that we purchased, and there's not a cover on it yet. What happens when you have stuff? What happens when you have stuff? You think about the stuff that you have. Not only do you think about your stuff, another thing that happens when you have stuff is you have to take time to care for it. You have to take time to, to care for the stuff that you have. You have a nice car, you got, you got to keep it nice. You have this grill, you got to put a cover on it. You have stuff, you, you got to take care of the stuff that you have. Not only that, but if you have stuff, you kind of get used to having your stuff. And so you think about it, you want to take care of it, and you're kind of used to having it. There's, this, there's kind of this, this comfort level that maybe you used to be comfortable here, and now you get stuff, and now, now you're comfortable here. You get used to having these, these new things you have. Your kid and you get a, an iPod or an iPhone or something like that. You, I can't imagine life before having this device or this thing. Yeah, Wendy and I, we, when we first got married, we moved into a, a studio a, apartment that was attached to a garage. And you know, just, that's where we lived. And then we moved into a, a two-bedroom apartment. And we couldn't imagine going, how in the world would we ever be, move, be able to move back to the, the smaller apartment? And then, then you're, you've been through this as well. A couple of you have probably moved several times in your life. And most times when you move, you move to a nicer location than the location you were at before. You get used to it. You're used to the stuff. And then, you used, not only you get used to the stuff, you think, okay, how can I protect my stuff? How can I protect my stuff? 
I've got this, this thing, this investment. I've, I've accumulated resources for myself, and I'm thinking about it. I don't want to lose it. I, I want to take care of it. Now I've got to think about how to preserve it. Maybe it's, maybe it's finances, and so I have all this money. Now how do I, how do I keep this money? I'll put it in some stocks. Well, stocks can go down. Well, I'll buy some gold. Well, someone can steal. I've got to buy a gun or something. I mean, what, what do I, I'm a Texan. I, how do, what do I do with all my stuff? I've got to diversify. How do I keep all this stuff? How do I keep you from getting my stuff? How do I keep my stuff from just disappearing? It's, it's a problem. Now, here, here's what I'm saying. You've got to prepare yourself as a, as a Christ-centered sojourner. A person says, this stuff is not my ultimate end. You've got to prepare yourself for the fact that if you have a lot of stuff, it's going to bring you trouble. Now, some people would say this, and this is a true statement. They say, well, are things inherently bad? No. It's not inherently an evil thing to have stuff. In fact, love what Paul tells Timothy. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he says, hey, I want you to tell the rich people this. Tell the rich people who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant. Tell them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to what? You know what he says? He provides us with everything to enjoy. It's not wrong to have things. It's good to enjoy them. A rich person, Paul tells Timothy, is to do good. They're to be rich in good works. They're to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So he says, it's not wrong to have things. In fact, they're to use these things as, as means for building up true treasure, eternal treasure. But then he also says, tell them to enjoy these things. So is it inherently wrong to have stuff? No. But, but you've got to prepare yourself. Stuff brings trouble. And if you're not enjoying your stuff, if you're not enjoying your stuff, Maybe you've got too much stuff. Because not only is it not, it's not inherently evil to have things, it's, not, it's also not inherently good. And there are many Christ-centered sojourners who say, you know what, man, this stuff is a lot of trouble. <laughs> it's time to simplify. It's time to get rid of this stuff because I've accumulated so much of it. It's time to get rid of some of this stuff so I can do what's, what's most important. I don't have time to take care of all these things. I need to get rid of them so I can focus on what's most important. That's a decision many of you are going to need to make. Many of you have made by God's grace. Jesus doesn't say, woe to the poor. He says, woe to the wealthy. Why does he say that? Because wealth is a burden. Wealth is a burden, a trap, a snare. It can be very dangerous. Money doesn't buy happiness isn't just a quaint, a quaint platitude. It's, it's an objective truth. We know that to be true. So return to worship when you fail with your stuff. Prepare yourself for the trouble stuff will bring. Number three, give your stuff generously. Give your stuff generously. I love what happens here with Abram and Lot, right? What could Abram have done here? As Abraham encounters Lot and Lot's herdsmen are 
fighting against his herdsmen. What did Abram have the right to do here? Abraham could have said, look, Lot, nephew, as, as the head of the family, I'm entitled to what's mine and you need to be subservient to me. And so here's the region that you're to go to and this is what you're to do and this is how you're to operate. That's what Abraham could have done. It's not what he does here. Abraham, and perhaps this is because of his time of worship and rightly recognizing the value of people versus things. He says, look, let's not have strife. I want peace here. I want something bigger than these possessions. I want peace between kinsmen, between brothers. We're we're brothers. And then he says, I'm going to give you the choice. The whole land is before you. If you want to go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you want to go to the right, I'll go to the left. What does he demonstrate here? He demonstrates faith. He demonstrates faith. In fact, he also demonstrates faith here in verse 9 when he says, is not the whole land before you. He he says that even though he knows the Canaanites are there, he trusts God to give him the land that he's promised. What does it mean? What does it mean if if I, I fail to be a generous person? What does it mean? If I'm not a person who just oozes generosity, One, it means that I've forgotten who the source of all that I have is. Paul tells tells us that um, what do we have that we did not receive, right? Everything that I have comes from someone, and ultimately the the person who I received everything from is is God. If I'm not a very generous person, it means that I've forgotten that truth from choosing to ignore it. Not only that, It also means this. If I'm not a generous person, it means I do not trust in God to continue to provide for me that which I need. If I'm not a generous person, it means, God, I know that you've given me these things, but instead of being a good steward and using these things as you would have me use them, I'm going to, to hold them very tightly, and I don't trust you to continue to provide for me that which I need. That's what I'm saying when I'm not a generous person. I, I trust that God has, has grown me in this area, but it's, but it's certainly an area that I, I've struggled with in the past and certainly an area that can, can just pop up in, in weird ways. You know, I, I'm a person who really, it's not so much that I, I love things, but I, I, I want the things that I have to be really nice, right? I want to keep them nice. I was, uh, this, this past week, Whitney and I, we're given some, uh, and those of you who live in Washington, maybe you had this opportunity as well. We were given some, some free trees. There were some free trees given. And so we, we went out and uh, Whitney wanted to plant them really quickly. So we went out and, and uh, we, we spent about, whenever I was there to help, we spent several hours just, just thinking about the location of, of each tree. And by we, I mean me. About where each tree would go and, and then... Uh, then I said, you know, I need some, I need some more time to think about it. Let's sleep on it. And, she, and she's like, really? I said, yeah, let's think about it and come back. And we're going to come the next day at a different time and place the trees. And then uh, the morning we're, we're planting the trees. I've, I've got to get to work, so I, I don't have time to help her with all of them. And I said, why don't you just, I'll help you with this first one, and then I'm going to go to work, and I'll try to come back. And, and uh, so I, so I kind of help her with the first one, and, and it takes us about half an hour to dig the hole because I'm kind of looking. I said, now look, if you, if you put it here and just align a little bit left, it'll, it'll be perpendicular to the sidewalk, and people can kind of see the straight line. And uh, she's like going, you, you probably need to get to work, right? <laughs> Time to go. So I, I go, it's, again, 30 minutes, right, to plant this one. And, and then uh, 
I, I call her and say, hey, how's it going? I'm trying to get home, if I can help you over lunch or something. She goes, yeah, I, I got them all in. I'm like, how is that possible? She goes, well, you left, right? <laughs> now, I'm being, I'm be, I'm being a, uh, these are free trees, right? It's not like I spent you know, hundreds of dollars. They're free. Whenever this past week someone uh, asked me to borrow a book, and I, I, oh, I don't have it in a hard copy. I, I have it digitally. And so I, I loaned it to them digitally. And as I, I loaned the book digitally, I thought, oh, how nice it is now that I loan out books digitally because people can't mess up the pages. Right? <laughs> how selfish, right? How selfish. A person who's not a generous person is a person who doesn't recognize where things have come from and who's going to continue to provide them the things that they need. Give your stuff generously. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, about your body, what you'll put on. Isn't life more than food? Isn't the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? God is the one who provides He says in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things will be added to you. Some of us are so worried about the stuff in this kingdom we don't enjoy life, right? Some of us are so worried about the stuff in this kingdom we can't even enjoy life. Many of you, many of us, need to just let some stuff go. Let it go. It's not bringing joy. It's causing you to not enjoy life. It's causing you to not trust God. Give generously. Give generously. A fourth practical suggestion for you is this. Consider the spiritual ramifications when making decisions about your stuff. Lot, verse 10, again, consider the spiritual ramifications when making decisions about your stuff. Verse 10, Lot lifts up his eyes and he looks around and Whenever you see someone in Genesis lift up their eyes, oftentimes there's some negative connotations. You, you see Eve look with her eyes. You see the sons of God look at the sons of, of uh, man with, with, with the daughters of, you see the sons of God look at the daughters of man with their eyes and there's, there's lustful intent behind it. And so the eyes, when they look upon things, are sometimes there, there's negative connotations there and that seems to be the case here. Lot lifts up his eyes and he looks and what does he see? He sees the Jordan Valley is, is well watered. He says it's like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And so, and, and now, let me just stop there. I don't think what he did at this point is necessarily wrong, right? In other words, it's not wrong to just physically look at two options. Abraham says you can go left or right. And so it's not wrong to kind of look left and right and say, okay, what, what options are in front of me? And what, what are going to be the financial ramifications, the well-being ramifications, that's not a wrong thing to ask, right? But I, I would suggest to you that the problem is in between verse 10 and verse 11. Do you see what he does in between verses 10 and 11? No, you don't because it's not there. He doesn't do anything. It's just, he just looks at physically what's taking place. And then it says in verse 11, so he chose for himself. So he looks and then he chooses simply based upon the physical qualities of the land, and they're separated. There's an ominous 
note there at the end of verse 10. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, this looked really nice before it got wiped off the face of the earth, right? Before it was covered in uh, ashes. The men of, another ominous note in verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now, let, let me suggest to you that many of us sometimes fail to consider the spiritual ramifications of our decisions, right? So we think, okay, over here's the, the, the physical kingdom. Here's my job over here, and here's my, uh, my Roth IRA and my 401k, and over here's my, my, are my investments and the decisions about my career. All this is over here now. And over here is my spiritual world, and here's my considerations about how to care for my family spiritually and, and uh, the, the ministry that I do in the church and my relationship with God. And, and we kind of think that those are, are two separate kingdoms. And sometimes we need to make sure that this doesn't like infringe on this one and this one doesn't infringe on the other or whatever, but we, we see them as, as separate Separate entities and questions with one don't necessarily relate to the other. But that's wrong, right? If Lot had asked some more questions and thought about this more deeply spiritually, he would have come to some different conclusions about what he should have done. And sometimes we literally do what Lot has done here in terms of thinking about our life. We look, we weigh which is better financially, which is better in terms of ease of life, and we make a decision. It's very rare, or let me put it this way first, it's very common for someone to come and want to talk to me or one of our other elders about our, uh, about spiritual decisions that they're facing, and, and that's great, right? But it's very, very rare for someone to come to me or another elder and say, hey, I just need, I just need some, someone to, to pray with me and brainstorm about how this, this career move that I'm about to make is, is going to affect me spiritually. About how this, this, this move is going to impact my family spiritually. As you think about taking a, a new job, you think, okay, if I take this new job, it's not, I'm not going to say, okay, I'm going to weigh these two jobs and then take the one and then get there and say, okay, now I've got to figure out how to do things. You know, now I've got to figure out how my spiritual life is going to be affected here and find a church. Or you're going to say, you know what, before I make a decision about where I'm going to move my family or what I'm going to do with my family, I'm going to think through what are the spiritual ramifications of this move. I'm going to say, is, is there going to be a place for my family to grow in the Lord? As you're a young person thinking about college, do you say, okay, I'm going to decide what the best college I can get into is, then I'm going to go, and then I'm going to get there and say, okay, now what can I do for my spiritual life? Or is that going to be part of the equation as you make decisions? As you're a young person thinking about what extracurricular activities you're going to do at school, you're going to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to find my extracurricular activities and then I'm going to kind of base my spiritual life based on what time I have left. Or you're going to say, okay, here's, here's how spiritual ramifications are going to help me make decisions about what I do with my time and my stuff. I believe that this is so crucial, so crucial for us to think through. What does it matter what does it matter if you find yourself a nice, cushy neighborhood to live in if it's a place that brings about the spiritual destruction of you and your loved ones, right? What gain is that? As you think about what to do with your times, think about what to do with your stuff, think through 
by God's grace, the spiritual ramifications of what you're deciding to do. Number five, fifth suggestion here. Treat God's words about stuff with reverence. Now, I'm... I'm reading into the, the text perhaps a little bit, but I, I, think, it's, I think it's okay here. I, I think this is a reasonable assumption to make. I'm assuming that Lot knew something about what God had told Abraham. His uncle has moved him from one location to, an, to the promised land, and the promised land to Egypt, then from Egypt back into the promised land. I, I'm assuming that at some point Abraham said, now here's why we're doing this, Lot. Here's what God has said. Now, now maybe that's not the case, but... It seems like Lot is not trusting what God's, is not treating what God's word has said about stuff with with reverence. He's not thinking through what God has promised. And and here's why I say that. Because look at what he, look at where he goes. Lot lifts up his eyes and he decides as he looks at the land to journey east. And in other words, he, he goes out of the promised land. He leaves the, the place that, that God has said that he would dwell in a special way. It's, it's a foolish decision. And there's going to be times, I think, in our lives as well, where if you just think about what people in our world of finances are, are recommending that we do, we're going to make some decisions based upon what God's word says about stuff that are different than what other people might suggest to do, suggest that we do. Now, I'm not one who believes that God has put some sort of like secret codes in the Bible about what to do with your finances, like, you know, uh, buy IBM or something like that. I mean, I don't, I don't think God's done that, all right? I, but I do believe that God has presented us, presented us with some principles that sometimes stand in contrast with, with what the world would have us do with our finances, Right? There are going to be times where a person might tell you, you know what, the best thing for you to do financially right now is to, is to go into some debt here. And as you look at what God's word says about debt, you say, you know what, I, I don't think that's the best thing for my family, so I'm going to do some things that are different than what the world might say to do. Or the world says, you know, push your advantage here in making this deal. And you're going to say, you know what, that's, that's not what God has called me to do. I'm going to treat what God's word says about stuff and about possessions with reverence. As God says that the borrower becomes a lender's slave, I'm going to take that pretty seriously. When God talks about the person who holds his or her heart against the need of the needs of the poor, about that person not having a right relationship with God, I'm going to take that pretty seriously. When God says that, that uh, the person who loves finances, that, that that's, that's uh, the, the root of all sorts of evil, I'm going to take that Pretty seriously. We treat God's words with reverence, seriousness. Number six, number six, we find joy in God instead of our stuff. The Lord then comes to Abraham, Lot's left, and he comes to Abraham in verse 14, and he tells him to look up, and he says, look all around you, and all this land that you have, I'm going to give to you and your offspring forever. I'm going to make your offspring like the dust of the earth, using this hyperbole here. If one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted, and walk through the width and breadth and length of the land, and and I will give it to you. Now, is Abraham's joy ultimately in the things that God is promising him or in God. Abraham's life is going to consistently demonstrate that it's not the things himself, themselves that he finds comfort and trust in, but ultimately it's in God. 
as the writer of Hebrews tells us, Abraham, if he, if he just wanted the stuff, he could have held on to it. He could have gone back to where he had come from. But, but, but no, ultimately, it wasn't about the stuff. It was about the Lord and his promises. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. As you delight in the Lord, you receive him, ultimately, ultimately trusting in what he's promised you. Here's the last thing. Last thing, return to worship when you've succeeded with your stuff. You return to worship at the beginning of the story when you failed with your stuff. Now here at the end of the story, you return to worship when you've succeeded with your stuff. Here, Abraham has done what is right. God has blessed him. Perhaps the temptation would have been to be arrogant, but what does he do? He comes, he takes his tent, he comes, he settles by the oaks of Mamre near Hebron, and he worships. He builds an altar to the Lord. We stay grounded in worship. Earlier in the chapter, the danger perhaps is a lack of repentance on Abraham's part. Now, maybe the, the danger is a, a lack of humility, of recognizing God as being the source of all provision, and Abraham responds in worship. And I think of Psalm 100, right? That links thanksgiving in worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he's God. It is he who's made us. I love this, love this picture here of possession. Who owns what? God owns us. We are his. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture. And so, verse 4 of Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for he's good. His steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. Why does God include so many stories of Old Testament saints in Scripture? Why tell us so much about Joseph and David and Ruth? It's not so that we could just mimic them. It's okay, this is what a good person does. They make choice A, choice B, choice B. I'm going to make choice A, choice B, choice C. Now, the purpose of showing us these people is to to show us what a life of faith looks like practically. And here, as we look at Abraham, we see a person who does not obey God perfectly, but a person whose example of faith we can emulate, of trust in the Lord with all things. As we think about the gospel, we say, okay, what, what is the gospel message? The gospel message is that I have, I have nothing. I have nothing that I can, can bring to God and fa- be found favorable in his sight. All I can do is place my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive the forgiveness from God on the basis of Jesus Christ's righteousness, and I can be called righteous, not on the basis of my righteousness, but on the basis of Jesus Christ. A righteousness, again, I receive through faith, through trusting in him alone. How does that change me? How does that change me? It radically, it radically alters my view of all the things of this world. Because all the things of this world are absolutely worthless compared to knowing and possessing Jesus Christ through faith. And therefore, I can give generously. I can treat the, the stuff of this world as temporary. I can consider the spiritual ramifications of what I do with my physical things because that's what I'm doing with every decision that I make. I can live a life by faith in Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, 
a grace that manifests itself in how I handle everything I have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the things you've given us, things that help us see the spiritual condition of our our souls and help us to live as Christ-centered sojourners, people placing our trust and confidence in you alone. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.